you went ready. Three, One, two. two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <I don't like. laughs> In this series, we'll be talking to and championing South Asian voices and stories, getting to know people's work, creative practices, and dissecting various topics together. We hope you enjoy this episode of The The Juice Juice Box. Box. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Juice Box podcast. I'm Evelyn, if you don't already know. I'm a co-founder for Juice, and I'm also the creative director, which means I do lots of the -the behind-the-scenes work, talking to people, collecting things, lots of admin. This week, I'm very lucky to be joined by Nikita, one of our Issue One featured artists and also an advocate, speaker and writer for Sisters. Hi, Nikita. Hey, Evelyn. How are you today? Not too bad, thank you. Are you well? Yeah, good, thank you. Excited for this episode. This is the first episode, um, guys, so be nice. Um, (laughs) Nikita, um, so do you want to start off by telling people a little bit about what you did in issue one being brown, just so we know? Yeah, of course. So I submitted um, two poems from a collection that explored what it's like to be British, but also to be Desi and what it's like to experience being brown within that specific context. Um, I started writing poetry actually during a trip back home to India in 2017, but then found that my poetic voice, so to speak, has really changed over the last couple of years. It went from exploring kind of visual concepts to really getting down into certain themes like mental health and race and identity. Okay, brilliant. And if you guys want to check out Nikita's poems, make sure to go on the Juice website and buy a copy of the digital issue one. All the print copies are gone now. But yeah, we loved having Nikita in the issue and her poems are really good. They're called Other and the Good Immigrant for anyone that's interested in finding the page. Aside from your poetry, Nikita, um, you work for Sisters. Could you tell us what Sisters is? Of course. So I actually do voluntary work for Sisters um, and Sisters is a support network, a non-profit organisation that is focusing specifically on supporting marginalised individuals, but also communities, um, specifically within reproductive and or mental health issues. So not only are we kind of actually trying to change how the medical system understands people of colour and different demographics in the UK, but we're actually working with with people that have conditions, um, teaching them how to actually advocate for them, how to advocate for themselves within a medical setting um, and how to approach getting a diagnosis or treatment. Okay, brilliant. Um, That's really good. And it sounds like a really, really great organisation that's really needed. Just in case people are interested in sort of getting involved in Sisters or maybe something similar, um, what do you specifically do for them as a volunteer and how did you find them? So I found sisters as I was trying to get diagnosed myself with endometriosis and I was waiting for my surgery. It was on the day itself. And I had read an article and I'd had conversations with people about how women of colour specifically um, are gaslighted or misdiagnosed when it comes to these types of conditions. So I put a call out across my personal social media networks to see if there were any other people that had suffered in the same way that I had. 
and if we could come together and maybe create something whether that's a platform or an actual creative output and I was signposted two sisters and I thought when I actually looked at what sisters did I thought here is an organization that's already doing what I want to do and I think sometimes there's almost a conversation around do I add to existing work or do I attempt to reinvent the wheel myself and I thought, oh, I'm not really that well versed in this area yet. I've just started. So let me give my attention, time and resource to someone that's already doing it. So I reached out directly to Neelam, who is the kind of director of Sisters. And I told her my story. I told her kind of what my skills are, which are around like writing and copywriting. And I just offered to, to help whenever she needed help because I really felt like I was seen within what sisters did. So we started off kind of small, if there were ever like London-based events or small pieces of writing, I would just help out. And then me and Neelam found that we have very similar views. Um, we speak about inequality in very similar ways. Um, and we both almost possess a talent that the other doesn't have. So it was a, it was a great kind of scope for teamwork. So it just grew from there. Um, I started writing articles mainly to tell people what it's like to have these conditions as a young South Asian woman and to not feel represented within the actual space because the space is so shrouded um, in whiteness. So if anyone was thinking of kind of getting involved with a similar organization, I think the best approach is to actually reach out to the organization to tell them what you could bring and also to tell them where your skills lie so that if they do have opportunities in the future, they can just signpost you straight there. Okay, that's really interesting. And I really like what you said about um, you weren't sure whether to sort of reinvent the wheel and do your own thing or get involved in something that already exists. And I think that's a big thing for people that are sort of establishing their own collective now. We're seeing loads of different ones pop up for different minorities. I've seen loads of South Asian collectives in recent times, South Asian women, South Asian groups, Desi groups loads of different ones um but it's really interesting that you join sisters instead of doing your own and with juice we definitely want to make sure that we're doing more collaborative endeavors instead of just trying to do our own thing all the time because I feel like it is so important to acknowledge the people that have come before us the people that we can just work with instead of sort of working against each other um do you think that this is just sort of like an off-topic question but of course do you think that um we're sort of raised, maybe, I don't know if you feel like race comes into this or ethnicity, um, we're raised to be more collaborative and work together, or do you think there's more of an environment where we're pitted against one another and we should? Oh, that is a, that's a good question. I, I would have to say healthy parts of both. Yeah. Um, I think within cultural communities anyway, there's, there's much more emphasis on the collective. Even if we look at like our home countries, that's the way society is run in the kind of, in the interest of, of everyone as opposed to individualistic. So I do think there is something around us being more likely to collaborate with each other, but in the same breath, because we're othered so heavily in society, we're also tokenized. So there can also be almost a competition for space that, and, and you see this a lot across any of the sectors and any of the kind of specialisms or niches that there tends to be one like authoritative kind of body that's given a lot of access, power and, and almost gatekeeps a lot of the other people from accessing that space. 
100%. I definitely agree with everything you just said. My sociology brain is like um, ticking, ticking. Um, I think definitely there's so much we can learn from the way that minority communities, particularly I've seen within South Asian families and just like neighbourhoods or communities, care for one another um, and collectively sort of look after each other. Um, Okay, so... That was just my little off thing, but let's go back to sisters. Um, stay on topic. Um, thank you for sharing also that you have endometriosis. Um, did you want to talk about some of the writing that you've done for them? I've recently read your piece on Discover Society about the representations of endometriosis. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, of course. So I was actually approached to write the article as we were originally supposed to have um, an endometriosis symposium um, in March 2020. But obviously with Corona, that inevitably never kind of took place. And I was approached by the people that had organised the symposium instead to write an article. And um, I did it in line with what I would have led my original session on, which is the importance of intersectionality when we look at endometriosis. Um, so that's whether when we represent it in the media, when we look at it medically, when we look at people's lived experience, we tend to see one particular narrative when it comes to endometriosis, and that is framed within whiteness and also framed within femininity and being cisgender. Um, both of those, let's say, binaries or categorizations of people, they exclude every other person that has endometriosis. And there's no rhyme or reason to the illness or disease. You can be, you know, any race, um, you can look any certain way and you can still get the illness. So for me, there was something that had to be addressed because marginalized people are always excluded from everything. And it felt unfair to me that here is another arena or another section of life where people are excluded. So when I wrote the article, I focused really and mentioned two demographics, um, one being the South Asian community, as that's where I've come from. And also when we look at audit reports, South Asian people report really low levels of satisfaction within the NHS. And then I wanted to spotlight another demographic and almost use my own privilege. So I thought as a cisgender person, I'm very much included in the narrative, even if I'm excluded in terms of race or in terms of aesthetic. So I did want to discuss how the transgender community are affected by endometriosis. And when I was looking through the audit reports, they were the two categories that really jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. It's not a lived experience thing, obviously, as I, as I am cisgender. But for me, that's an inherent privilege within this space. So I would like to use my voice uh, to amplify those as much as possible. I was really lucky on the kind of back of the article. We ran an online kind of endometriosis webinar series. Um, I was asked to kick off the series with another speaker. And I did a um, presentation on endometriosis and intersectionality. And what I did is I looked at all of the binaries that rule society. So race, class, um, gender, ability, nationality, um, sexuality. And what I did is I tried to give anyone that was in the room an example of what it actually looks like when you sit at different points within those identity. So, for example, when I looked at race, I had three, like a binary and three very specific points, which was, you know, whiteness, brownness and blackness. And then I talked about what kinds of privileges or barriers you might face if you come from that particular part of the identity. Um, it was very, very well received. I was scared that it might actually be, you know, too low level because it was um, for some academics and kind of researchers. But actually, it wasn't, which was quite surprising 
to me, knowing how long intersectionality has been around as a concept and how much of a buzzword it is at the moment. Yeah, I think it's definitely a term that gets co-opted and just changed, really, taken away from what it originally meant to be. I really liked um, the definition you gave in the article and when you talked about Kimberly Crenshaw. For any listeners that might not know, because I know both sociology minds, could you tell us what intersectionality is? Of course. So the easiest way that I try to explain intersectionality is that society is ruled by binaries or systems, which are very, very clear cut into majority and minority. So let's even look at race. Uh, whiteness is the, the dominant kind of power at the moment when we look at racial lines and it exists in direct opposition to blackness. You can't have one without the other. So intersectionality is looking at all these different facets of someone's identity. So all the different parts, uh, what your race is, what class you are, what your even what your age is, what sexuality you are, um, what your levels of ability are, where you were born, like the you know postcode lottery. So intersectionality is looking at all of these different parts of someone's identity and understanding that they interlace like they interlock and they overlap with each other. For example, if I face oppression or discrimination or prejudice in society, as, as I have many, many times, it's quite difficult for me to determine what it is about my identity that is resulting in that oppression. Is it the fact that I am a brown woman? You know, is it the fact that I'm brown? Is it the fact that I'm a woman when I was really overweight? You know, was that part of it? So it, it's understanding that people are held by different narratives. If you are, for example, a black woman, you're not just held by racism. You're also held by sexism and, and well, actually misogyny noir. But that's that's another conversation. I hope that explained it without being too. Oh, definitely. Thank you for doing that. Um, I know it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and if anyone wants to find out more, um, the term was coined and conceptualised by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. Um, she was talking about the experiences of black women in the legal system. Um, it's really interesting and it's been extended by a lot of academics, hasn't it, um, and yeah. researchers um, to be used in the way that Nikita was talking about so we can use it to understand how these intersecting identities will affect specific experiences. Um, and I think it's really important that we adopt this sort of intersectional lens or approach to issues like endometriosis because otherwise we are going to have the most marginalised groups still on the fringes. Um, I also really like, Nikita, that you outlined your positionality. Like you said, you know, I'm aware of the things that disadvantage me as a brown woman. And I think it's really important that we can be open about those privileges, but also make sure that we include those people. I think it's something that we constantly have to push ourselves to do, like always critiquing, always trying to be better. Um, but I was really, really pleased to see that in the article. Um, Thank you. And it sounds like it ended in some really cool stuff with the academics and the researchers at the talk. Um, do you think, I don't know, but is there a lot of like research on the experiences of different types of women or individuals that suffer from endometriosis or do we need more to help them? We do. I think when we look at endometriosis, we tend to really look at the medical side of endometriosis and we miss the lived experience and how people are actually affected by endometriosis because it's although it's classed as a reproductive health condition it's it's specialists in the US especially are actually finding that endometriosis is probably autoimmune and it's it's the it's almost a chronic inflammatory response to cells being in the wrong places in your body 
Um, we do need to actually understand intrinsically, like at the heart, how much endo can affect, like I can only speak about my own life and it has affected every single part of my life. There's not one section of my life that has not been impacted by endometriosis. And when we have stories around, you know, people's experiences, and, and again, this is within my own frame of reference, like there were the APPG, so the all party all party parliamentary groups around endometriosis last year and sisters was invited to the table to obviously ensure that there was some level of diversity within the panel sessions but with the exception of one session that I attended I was the only brown person in the room there was one other woman of color from the, from the organization that was hosting the meetings who was kind of taking minutes but with the exception of us like there were no other women of color in the room and I'm quite an outspoken person. I'm not afraid to say how I feel, but even I still get quite intimidated by whiteness um, and being in very white rooms and found that it's just a completely different way of looking at looking at things. If you don't live an experience, you couldn't you couldn't hope to even start trying to encapsulate it or trying to make policies that would help. And for me, it was it was glaringly obvious that something was wrong in that space because they were talking about ethnic minorities and I was the only ethnic minority at the table. And they were also talking about the transgender community and there were no transgender people in the room. So it's so difficult because even if we think about, you know, being South Asian in that point, you know, you were somewhat, you weren't fairly represented, but I was there. So you were somewhat represented, although one person doesn't represent an entire community. But when it comes to communities like the non-binary or the transgender communities, there are policies or things that are being created. And like, there is no one from that community present, like at all. Yeah, Um, There are just all these things being put forward by cisgender people and it, it it doesn't make any sense so do you think to get more of those people in the room we need more research on their experiences led by those groups of people so like led by trans people led by women of color yes like there needs to be a there needs to be actual like for me budget money and yeah. resources allocated to this rather than tick box ex- ticks tick box exercises and statements about how we're going to change and how we're going to be inclusive because even when there have been representations of said communities in the room it's tokenistic you know it's it's one one transgender person one non-binary person and you also can't expect one person to hold an entire community but yes we do need to see more lived experience of endometriosis and that needs to be across color lines across gender lines across class lines sexuality lines like all the different intersections Um, I'd love to see an emergence of different narratives because I'm pretty tired and other you know people that look like me that have this illness of turning on the television and seeing just white women yeah no definitely it's just from my personal experience all I've seen is white influencers or celebrities really that's the only times I've personally come across it um yeah. and obviously like most women's fertility or um illnesses only affect women we just have this massive deficit of sort of research and care given to us like and even when we go to the GP for normal things it's like exaggerate it because they're not going to listen to you they're gonna get ignored, um yeah. <laughs> every time um but yeah, it sounds like the discourse is very much dominated by whiteness and sort of um, mainstream discourses of femininity, like you were saying earlier. Yes. And what do you feel like Sisters is doing to bring 
to the forefront this approach that can be led by people of color or by non-binary or trans women so this is really interesting because so sisters it's sisters itself like even recently last year sisters used to have a different kind of tag name a tagline and our branding used to be different but we changed our branding last year to ensure that it's inclusive across kind of gender lines that it's it's trans and non-binary inclusive yeah. and actually there was a lot of resist that you know there's a lot of resistance to that um in the space i think a lot of people feel that if you give space to another demographic it, it takes away mm -hmm. um, from yours, which of course is 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 not the agenda at all. Yeah. So with sisters, they have started to gain a lot more kind of attention over the last couple of years. And I can honestly say from my own personal kind of perspective, and also I've heard this from many other advocates within the space, that if sisters wasn't in certain meetings or spaces, there would be even more of a lack of diversity. Um, and it's not even just kind of representation, although representation is very important to be able to see yourself as like as someone that has the condition, but also there's actual practical work on the ground. So sisters has worked with the NHS, with certain trusts around cultural sensitivity mm -hmm. and not just within the NHS itself, but Sisters is really trying to reach people in unconventional ways, like Neelam herself and other sisters have delivered training within faith, like kind of faith and cultural settings and um, within the temple, within the Gudwala. So it's, it's trying to ensure that we are heard on all levels, not only within society, but also emboldening people themselves to understand that their power and their story and their voice is important. When I was battling to get diagnosed, I was like a different person. I, I almost became like a shell of myself. Um, I was very, very lost. And sisters, the platform, the opportunities that I've been able to access just through telling my story have almost built me back up from the ground. I wouldn't be here currently even talking to you without sisters in my life. So it's they have such a wide and vast impact and there is recognition in some places, but for me, there's not enough. I think people that are in the space that have more power or prominence or that gatekeep, like a lot of us from accessing it, they need to take a step to the side. I think it's, it's 2021, enough is enough. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself then, Nikita. Um, it's really interesting to hear and obviously disappointing about how much it can weigh on a person, but reassuring mm. to hear that Sisters is doing so much work that reaches across, you know, sectors, people, community, culture. Um, it sounds like um, that the work is very intense. You guys are in these whiteness dominated spaces, often sort of being the advisors, being the other. What do sisters do to sort of help you guys practice self-care? Do you do anything? Like, what's the team like? So the team is, ma it's mainly like volunteer-led, okay. really. There's a couple of like key people in sisters and then there's the trustees too mm -hmm. so what one thing I would say is that we are all relatively close so we do check up on each other quite a lot mm -hmm. when we were outside of corona there used to be a lot of things in place to support not only sisters but actually people within the community mm -hmm. like we would have like kind of like chai and chat um, mm -hmm. sessions where everyone would come together and really get to explore what had been troubling them but I think one of the biggest things around self-care and sisters and this might sound a bit strange but it comes back to that 
lack of voice and feeling kind of powerless or unseen or unheard that because sisters could access certain opportunities because of the name they've made for themselves now like for example I've been kind of invited to speak on BBC Asian Radio Network a couple of times Um, I was included in like a video montage on Endo and like the BBC One like there are all these different kind of opportunities that have even come off the back of being involved in sisters and that for me is the biggest self-care element of sisters is that it revitalize re-empowers and reinstates people's voices it finally gives people a space where they can speak and they feel that they won't be ignored and they'll be listened to that would be probably for me the biggest self-care output that sisters doesn't it and it probably you know didn't even mean to do that it was just almost a a happy side effect so to speak Yeah, it's really nice to hear about that sort of recognition and that take on self-care as sort of re-empowerment rather than other angles sort of to do with rest and recovery. Um, This is a more personal question, but how do you draw the boundaries between yourself and your sort of work for sisters? Do you find it hard because it's so sort of intertwined or...? Oh, that's an interesting question. I would have to say also just as a, a writer or just an artist generally that I don't think you can separate Um, like writers or creators from their work Mm -hmm. Um, even being kind of a creator or creative myself it makes me look at other people's work more critically like when we talk about you know problematic artists that are known for for being abusive or or whatever else and they still create you know fantastic pieces of art or like literature or music even but for me you can't really separate the two especially because a lot of my work for sisters is is my lived experience it's it's the things that I've gone through Um, and not just the things I've gone through in my diagnosis journey but the things I've gone through kind of throughout my life But in the same breath, when you put so much of yourself into something, it can then be hard to not take any criticism of said like writing or pieces as inherent criticisms of you. And I did find when I first started writing for Sisters, there were a couple of kind of key pieces um, like Use It or Lose It, like White Privilege and the Danger of a Single Story or White Saviorism. Whenever I kind of talk about whiteness or how, you know, whiteness as an ideology gaslights women of color and also gaslights the organizations that support us, there is resistance when, you know, those articles are shared in spaces that are not uh, as safe yeah. as sisters. I've never had that pushback from, from sisters itself. But when we've shared those articles across, you know, various places, and various spaces there's a lot of defensiveness again you know like oh you know I'm endometriosis and I have white and I'm not doing these things or you know my story is important too and I'm like hey you know I'm not saying it's not. So um, just to double check um, sisters is that a woman of colour organisation so it's all like South Asian but. So sisters was actually like created by Neelam and Neelam created yeah. it in response to there being a lack of cultural awareness when it comes to dealing with PCOS, endometriosis, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We have a heavy South Asian leaning yeah. because obviously Neelam is South Asian. I'm, I'm South Asian. Mm-hmm. So there are things that, that are centered specifically within that experience. But no, we're looking at kind of all marginalizations. We have people from sisters that are also white, you know, that aren't marginalized and we have members of sisters that would identify as being non-binary so it's really it's very very but our our key output is that it's for marginalized people and communities and that even recently we released a a statement around things that we will not accept within the net 
within the network, like specifically kind of transphobia, racism. And for us, the main point kind of off the back of that is that we're not here to center the majority. Society centers the majority. We don't belong to the majority. So we're not here to do that. And if that's what you're coming to us for, you will be heavily disappointed and you will probably leave. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. That's really interesting. And it's good that you guys have sort of put the boundaries on it, I think. So like saying, you know, we're open to allies, we're open to having people that might not have experienced these struggles or be marginalized, but we're not going to have all of you. (laughs) Like we're only going to have people that are willing to do the work. Um, Yes. I think that's a sort of really important approach. Like with Juice, we obviously are a South Asian collective and magazine, but we do obviously work with other people, but only people that are willing to do that work and practice sort of true allyship. Um, Okay, so we've talked a lot about your sort of individual work and you mentioned about um, some of the support that sisters have in place being affected by COVID. Mm -hmm. Has your work changed a lot during the pandemic? Do you feel like it's coming back? It's a hard one because there are some things that sisters do that I didn't kind of mention, so perfect place to mention them now. There are some things that sisters do that are kind of logistical and always in place. For example, like trying to help with the um, period poverty movement. We do get a lot of donations that we kind of try to distribute and move on. Um, But aside from that, like it's a difficult one because endometriosis, it requires surgical intervention. Mm-hmm. unfortunately there are only two ways to treat it medically which is kind of with hormones or surgically and once it's grown in your body there, there is no other way of kind of getting it out so COVID has really impacted people's surgeries like e- even myself um, I should have had a laparoscopy in, in 2020 around this time but um, haven't even been put back on a list and, and even the waiting list itself is kind of 12 to 18 months so although we might not be able to actually engage with people physically within the community we are still doing a lot of support because people are facing these delays and not only that but people's mental health has been so severely impacted because when you think of endometriosis and again all of the medical gaslighting that takes place when you're battling to kind of finally be heard even for myself it took me two years um, even after I'd been diagnosed with endo to finally be put back under specialist care um, even though I've I'm known to have the disease if that makes sense so it's strange because there are a lot of people like myself who finally felt you know seen and heard you know it took me two years and I got here and then COVID came in and has pushed it kind of at least another year or two um kind of forward so we are still doing support we did recently do a kind of joint project with endometriosis uk where we looked at how covid has impacted endometriosis care um, specifically when it comes to people of color so we held focus groups again with just and it was interesting because when it comes to endometriosis i've never accessed a fully like brown or black space um, it's always been a, a very very majority white space but these kind of focus groups were the only time that I got to really experience and talk about endometriosis with just kind of brown and black women which was very empowering and it was completely different from anything that has kind of ever come before so we are still working yes we've had to kind of change the way that we work but we're still here still pushing through (laughs) Yeah, um, well, you sound really hopeful and that you've still carved out a really important and safe space. Um, so that's definitely reassuring. Um, but it's disappointing to hear about the effects of the pandemic on the actual treatment that women are getting. And it's yeah. something that a lot of people aren't talking about, I think, with COVID, like 
most people obviously scared of the virus um and especially within black and brown communities we've a lot of us have lost a lot of people um yeah. but we also have to be thinking about these knock-on effects of people people with chronic illnesses people with terminal illnesses how it's impacted their treatment um and i think yeah it's just important to bring it up so thank you no worries um, i wanted to move on from your work for sisters and talk about has that informed your poetry at all or do you feel like your poetry is a sort of different aspect to me you said you can't separate artists and that art but it's a it's a great it's a great question um it is a great question and actually i i do think my work with sisters has impacted my poetry mm -hmm. um when i first started writing poetry it was it's strange like my creative process was kind of poetry so poems would come to me it, that was literally my creative process i would be out i would see something or experience something and the word would form in my mind I'd write them down and, and that would kind of be it but who I am as a person especially through sisters has really changed I've always known that there were you know quite extreme levels of inequality within society but even though I've been othered as a brown woman I still carry you know inherent privilege as being a light-skinned brown woman so that all also protected me from a lot of things growing up you know the language and the discourse we even use to talk about racism is so different now. You know, we didn't have the concept of white privilege when we were growing up. If we did, you know, maybe maybe we would have been very different people. But Sisters really opened my eyes to just the effects of medical gaslighting and what it can do to your mental health. Um, I say this a lot and I mean it, that the, the experiences that I've had within the NHS and to be honest, the trauma that I have kind of suffered as a result of those experiences are almost as worse, as almost as bad as endometriosis itself. Like it's, it's another thing to kind of tackle, so to speak. So my narrative voice has changed a lot in the last especially within the last year. Um, during COVID, my physical and mental health broke down both and kind of deteriorated quite a lot. I haven't been able to work full time or, or at all since kind of May 2020. And even people that kind of know me or, you know, people that follow my poetry will comment on how different my voice is now within the last, especially within the last year. And Sisters is a really big part of that because I knew these things as everyone does, but when you actually live them, they're very different. So yes, they, they're, they're, they're almost two sides of the same coin. They're the two ways I express myself, just different formats. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, and I'm sorry that the experience has been so traumatic for you. Um, it sounds awful. Um, do you think that the poetry is a sort of, when you write it down and you release it to people, do you find it's like a hopeful outlet or do you just think it's your way of putting it down that the poetry comes to you, like you said? It's a bit of, I think it's a bit of both. Yeah. Um, writing has always been really powerful for me as a person, um, you know, journaling, writing short stories and, and poems. Like this has been something that I've done for a very long time. Yeah. So yes, I do think that, but in the other hand, my poems are a space where I feel I can really be myself and I can have my critical voice. When it comes to women, especially, and especially women of color, there are certain emotions that we're conditioned to not experience or to not display, like anger, um, yeah. as an example. So for me, the poetry is a creative space and I'm in control. Mm -hmm. It's my voice. No one else is commandeering my voice or, you know, putting it into their agenda. 
it's it's my words how I want to say them and how I want people to receive them like there's this great there was a great quote around poetry I couldn't tell you who said it but they said you know poetry is being able to convert really universal forms or concepts into a really personal narrative between you and the reader and that's really what I want to do also to by being very open and candid, even with my kind of mental health poems and explorations around race and identity, is open a conversation that people can see they're not the only one that feels that way, that actually any diaspora or creative of colour, they we all explore this within our art, you know, the sense of belonging, the sense of being in a body that is told doesn't belong in the space that you're in. So, yeah, I would have to say both of those. Yeah, you speak so, like, clearly and articulately about it. When you said that you journal, I feel like I can really tell in the way you speak about it and in your poetry, it's so, like, thoughtful and there's so much time and curation that's gone into it. It's really interesting to me. Um, And you talked about sisters informing your poetry, but for anyone that didn't see maybe your issue one being brown stuff, do you want to talk a bit about the other themes that inform, like you said, as a South Asian woman? Yes, of course. So my biggest, the the thing I'm trying to achieve the most is to spotlight the othered narrative. We have this concept of like, you know, the normal or the human narrative, which is actually just the majority view of whatever's kind of in power. So my experiences as as a child, as a teenager, as an adult, like navigating the world in the way that I do, and even coming back to the uh, kind of earlier point around not knowing what parts of my identity are impacting what parts of my experience at which time. But it's so interesting because I, you know, I loved poetry as a child um, and as a teenager, and I would write poems, but they were they focused on the, the lyrical content and the aesthetic. They never really were about exploring how I felt. But as I started to, it was actually when I started um, seeking help for my mental health and had my first kind of mental health intervention that my therapist asked me to start journaling. Um, I was a big journaler as a child, but I've had um, depression and anxiety from, from a very young age, from about the age of 11. So when I was a kind of adult reading back on my later, my earlier journals that were full of really kind of dark stuff from an 11 year old mind, it really scared me. And I actually didn't journal for, for a very long time. But when I was going through the battle to diagnosis and being seen by a therapist, I found that writing things down on paper took them out of my mind and then I could kind of throw them away or put them away and never look at them again. And I actually went back um, after my second mental health intervention and read through the notes and actually found that, you know, a lot of my notes were poetic and I actually turned a lot of those notes into poems um, as well. So uh, poetry is, it's like a, it's just like another part of me. It's really hard to describe because it's, it's something that just brings me unadulterated joy and it's a space where I actually feel really seen Mm -hmm. which is not something that usually happens um and it was hard at first because when you first start writing you know you you wonder you know are people just saying that they like it or do people genuinely connect to it but when I started kind of doing submissions and people actually started saying hey you know your your work is great it that also really validated me as well and I was getting exactly what you said at the end there that poetry is just part of you it sounds Mm. like 
it has been part of you for a long time um and I can't believe you've been journaling for so long I'm so impressed I really really need and want to start journaling but I haven't got around <laughs> I think I'm scared as well um, I can give you like really like you know basic gen like really really basic tips I can send you prompts like there are so many ways to do it and you can yeah. get creative journals now where you can like have sections where you draw or you like you make collages so there's definitely ways around it brings us a really good end point before we finish did you want to read a poem Nikita for us I did want to read a poem so it's actually the latest one and just as a quick intro um I reflect quite a lot especially at night because there's there's no distractions there's no space and it's finally a time where my mind I was about to say quietens down but it doesn't um, it really kind of amps up and that's when I experience the most anxiety when I've had kind of panic attacks it's generally at that time of night and I've been doing a lot of mental health exploration trying to like see what my patterns are trying to challenge behaviors so I was having a bit of a spiral almost one day and I just said to myself like you know who you are you don't have to do this and then a poem just essentially like came into my mind um which I titled as 206 because that was the time in the morning that I wrote it but I'd love to share that with you yeah brilliant go ahead thank you rebellion runs through my veins I'm impatient I've always been impatient but not now not in this moment I feel peace I am peace. You've never seen me, not the real me trapped beneath. My mask is slipping, worn out and faded. It frays at the edges. It doesn't look the same, less shiny and new, fits a little differently, tight around the eyes, pinching at my skin, suffocating. How long have I been wearing it? A second skin, waiting to be shed, to be cast aside. I can feel the air on my face. I've forgotten what the sun felt like. I've forgotten what I felt like, who I am, where I've been, where I come from. Never again. I am not lost. I am found. I'm here. I've always been here. The way you write and talk about um, race and sort of coming into yourself really reminds me of Du Bois. Do you know Du Bois? Oh, yes, I studied. Du uh, I, I did. I studied at uni. Yeah. What did you do at uni? I actually did an English lit. Oh, wow. OK. I'm supposed to study Du Bois, but that's cool. Um, we did a 19, I think it was either it was either 18th or 19th century American literature. So we looked a lot um, at kind of like race critics. Yeah. Although, interestingly enough, that session, that topic was led by like a white man. We'll see. <laughs> In our pre-chat, Nikita and I were sharing a lot about experiences of whiteness and university and our disappointment, um, which I'm sure everyone listening has heard me talk about a lot already. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for reading that, Nikita, and for sharing so much with us today. I've really, really enjoyed it. Before we finish, do you want to let everyone know like where they can find you on socials, where we can find sisters? Of course. So we are with Sisters. There is the kind of general um, page that you can go to on Facebook. So literally Sisters is C-Y-S-T-E-R-S. -E um, so there's the open group. But if you're someone that actually needs support, there's a closed private chat group. 
um, where a lot of the kind of peer-to-peer support actually takes place. Again, you don't have to be marginalized or have a condition to join the group, but if you are there, you have you can't talk over anyone that has lived experience. Like we're not we're not here to center you, but if you want to kind of be a witness, then of course do. Um, Sisters is also on Twitter. It's on Instagram as at Sisters Group. Um, I'm also on Instagram. The handle will be kind of in the description of the podcast, but um, I'm on, I've got a personal account if you want to kind of follow my journey with Endo um, and just my personal journey, or I've got my kind of didactic diaspora account, which is my pen name and my poetry account. So you can find us within those spaces. Um, I will eventually set up a website. It's on my, it's on my list. So watch this space. Thank you everyone for listening also we have also just launched our patreon so if you can and you feel able to support juice please do and become a patreon um yeah thanks guys bye bye thank you so much for listening to the juice box we hope you enjoyed it and are looking forward to the next episode to keep up to date with Juice, head to our Instagram or Twitter at Juice Droplet. Or head to our website, juicedroplet.com. That's spelled J-U-I-C-E-D-R-O-P-L-E-T. Here you can find more details about us and purchase issue one being brown. Thank, Thank you again, again and see you next time. time.